Well, that's sort of it. Not quite it, but it's close. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, just a word of thanks for everyone who participated in community service day yesterday. Well done. Uh, it was gruesome, wasn't it? It was cold and wet. <laughs> I was talking to God about this, you know, Friday, perfect weather, beautiful, today, lovely day, yesterday, it's snowing, it's snowing out there almost, it was crazy. Thank, thanks so much, we had, we had a great time in spite of the weather and for all of you who came out and served, and there are others of you that I know are going to complete some of the project you began yesterday later in the week, so it's all good, appreciate it so much. One other thing, we have an open house today over in the children's lobby uh, at Christmas, we re- raised some money to renovate, redesign the children's area. You remember that? Uh, phase one, the lobby has been completed, so you can kind of get a feel for the decor that will then extend all the way through the children's wing of the, of the campus, and they're ha- hosting an open house over in the lobby today. So I, on your way out, your way through, I hope that you'll just go over there and check out that renovation. I think it'll be a blessing to you, and they're serving cookies, so... They're ready for you, so I hope you'll, you'll take time to do that. Thanks for bringing your Bibles with you today. If you've, uh, if you've brought them, we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah today, chapter 8. This is the second in a three-week series that we've des- de- described as Finding Your Way. It uh, could be subtitled Ancient Pathways for Modern Travelers. We want to look at some of the key principles that we can learn about finding our way and staying on the way staying in God's best plan for our life. And so today we want to study Nehemiah and how this plays out in his life. should be a blessing, I hope. It is our custom to invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. And I'll begin reading at verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right were some guys, and on his left... (laughs) There were some other guys. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And by the way, there is the reference that we use for this practice that we have here at Union Chapel to stand to honor God's word. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord and the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, there were a bunch of those, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning to that so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. May God strengthen us today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. 
me ask you a question. Have you ever lost your way in life? Ever had a, had a moment when you just lost it? Maybe a week, maybe a season of your life, maybe years passed in your life when you just were dazed or confused or disoriented or weak. Today we want to consider the way to strength. And if we are strong, we can stay on the way, find our way, stay on the way. So we need the strength of God. So how is it that we can live with the strength that God alone can provide to us through the circumstances of our lives? Verse 10 of our passage today, Nehemiah said, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, contrast that with uh, some of the phrases of our own culture. For example, I just saved a bunch of money by switching to Geico. <laughs> and so we're happy about that. It makes us happy. Momentary, circumstantial things tend to make us happy. Circumstantial realities too often control our sense of personal well-being in the world. You having a good day? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's sunny. You having a bad day? No, it's raining. And it's no way to live. So much so that we can actually be made weak or defeated by circumstances that really don't have any direct relationship to who we are in the world. I've seen some guys actually experience clinical depression because their fantasy football team has suffered. Really? Come on, is it that bad? Um, in Nehemiah 8.10, we hear the truth of God's word. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The context for this important passage is just at the end of a horrible period in the life of the nation of Israel. Seventy years or so prior to this, the Babylonians had overrun them. They had gotten away from God, the words of God, the ways of God, and their enemies became stronger, and they, they simply overwhelmed them. Jerusalem was leveled. The Israelites were taken into captivity, and now for these many decades, the Israelites have been away from their home and away from their God. Nehemiah is actually serving the king of Babylon at the time. Artaxerxes was his name, and Nehemiah began to since God calling him to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. When you read the book of Nehemiah, this is the central focus of, of this book, that, that Nehemiah now feels called to go back home, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and reinstitute the worship of God and the words of God. And Nehemiah is given favor by the king, and so he's appointed governor. And so he goes back and under great duress rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. It's a miraculous, marvelous story, an inspiring one. Ezra is the, is the priest, among other Levites, and so on this occasion, Nehemiah has gathered the people now trickling back out of captivity to the homeland, and he assembles the people, and he has Ezra blow the dust, if you will, off of the Old Testament law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he simply starts reading the old law to the people, and the people are moved deeply moved by this. Now, here's what's happening. As the words of God are being heard for the first time in decades, and some of these folks, uh, because of their age, would have never heard the scripture in their lives. And so now for the first time in their lives, they are hearing the truth of God through the Mosaic law, and, and conviction grips them. They are, they are aware that God is close to them now, but God has been far from them. 
And it's a result of their own rebellion and their own sin. And they feel the, the weight of that. They feel the sadness of that. They, they feel the poignancy of that. We can identify with this moment, can't we? When the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, you know, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't behave that way. And we, we feel the grip of that and the poignancy of that. And like a tsunami now with the words of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, it washes over these people and they begin to weep. At first they say, amen, amen, but then it, realizes, it grips them. See the, see the contrast here. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem as the people are made aware of the walls of their own lives which have been broken down. And so they, 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 they come under conviction, the weight of that, and they begin to weep. And so what Nehemiah says to the people in that context in verse 10 really is quite astonishing because he says, these, these are people, we know you've fallen out of the favor of God, you've neglected the worship of God, the words of God, the ways of God, but this is not a time, there's, there's a place for godly sorrow, there's a place for that, but he said, you're missing the point today, wait a minute, this is not a moment to weep, this is a time to rejoice. Now, now, let's unpack that and try to make the application to our lives because I think there's much to learn here. The first is this. If you're following the outline, rediscovering God in your life is a time for rejoicing. Time for rejoicing. Now, nobody likes that conviction, right? When, when God actually walks up to you and puts a mirror in your face and says, here, look at yourself as you really are. That's not pleasant. I mean, when we see ourselves really as we are, it makes us wince. Oh, man, is that, is that really what I've been doing? Is that how ugly it is? And so we feel that. But listen to me. Conviction is never a time for guilt and condemnation. As I say, there's a time for godly sorrow. I should, maybe, I should feel sad. That's like normal. I feel bad about that. But it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's not about condemnation. It's not about you're terrible, get away from me. But rather... This is an opportunity for to us to recognize God is close to me. When I'm feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the challenge of God's Spirit to, to live better, more nobly, more honorably, that's an indication that God is actually close to me. He's not finished with me. He's not through with me. He's not given up on me. And so God is actually close. And this is behind Nehemiah saying, look, this is not a time to weep. This is a time to rejoice. You've been separated from God. God's not been at the table for a long time in this nation, but now he's back at the table and he is close to us. And that's worth rejoicing over. So instead, God sends, God sends these, these interruptions in our lives and throws up these roadblocks in our lives and tries to remind us that, look, if you keep going that way, it's going to be destructive and harmful to you. I love you too much to allow you to keep going down that course. So God sends messages, he sends warnings, he sends cautions until we come to our senses. I bet you I could get a witness, a testimony in the room today of someone who said that God loved me so much that he actually got my attention by taking a two-by-four and cracking me with it, laying me out like a carpet to get my attention. You know, you're on the road to some destructive behavior, and God says, look, I love that person too much to let them go interminably down that road. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop them there and help them come to their senses and crack. Can I get a witness? Anyone ever wake up and go, what the heck was I thinking? What have I done? But you realize that God is close to you. He cares enough about you to actually 
stop you, keep you from doing something that's going to hurt you. And that's a great thing. You remember a few years ago, Michael Vick was in the headlines in our country. He was an NFL quarterback, and he was convicted and in prison, actually, for being part of a gambling ring that featured dogfighting. And, and culture just went crazy over this. Um, and there were implications to all kinds of levels of our culture, morally and racially and legally, spiritually, all these implications. But one thing we can say about this episode is that, is that God must have loved Michael Vick so much, and people like Michael Vick, that he was willing to intercept him and stop him and keep him from moving forward. And as the years have unfolded, Michael Vick's testimony, I've come to Jesus and I'm a different guy now, you know, that's actually proving out and good for him. And thank, thank God for that. Now, let me just give you another little piece of information or insight into that whole episode. What we do in America these days, and this is good to, uh, to illustrate, is that we practice uh, selective moral outrage. We have selective moral outrage. For example, in Michael Vick's case, we just, we just thought, you've mistreated dozens and dozens of dogs? And as evil and despicable as it is to treat animals in an inhumane way, and it is, it's horrible, it's awful, and we, and we, sh and we should be outraged about that, absolutely. But at the same time, we get, we get apoplectic over the abuse of animals, we at the same time, every day in America, abort 4,000 human beings. That's selective moral outrage. We have two women on our staff, staff families, who are in their third trimester of pregnancy, and we're just so excited for them. And, and it's been fun to uh, celebrate and anticipate this joy that's coming, this potential of new life. And, you know, but in the United States, both of these women or any woman in their third trimester could go to a clinic in the morning on a Monday morning and what would happen to that baby cannot be mentioned. It is so horrific. But we have selective moral outrage in this country. We select the things that are going to irritate us and kind of ignore the other things that we don't want to talk about or deal with. There's a big deal right now about same-sex marriage in our culture, of course. And the, you may know that the Supreme Court this month uh, is going to actually rule on a case that will either legalize same-sex marriage in this country or not. And there are lots of voices on the culture on both sides of that argument screaming pretty loud right now. And we, we have uh, conservatives, Christian conservatives, for example, on one side of that argument saying it's the worst possible thing that could possibly happen to f marriage and family in America, undermining the historic standards of, of value and, and definition. And, and, you know, they have a right to scream like that. But I don't think that same-sex marriage is the greatest threat to, to American marriage and family. I don't. This is my personal opinion. I'll tell you what I think is a greater threat to marriage and family in America. It's online pornography. It's adultery. It's divorce. 
You know, 50 years ago in this country, those three things I just mentioned, you didn't even mention them out loud. Because people who engaged in such things were ostracized. Because everybody in the culture understood, look, you can't go around behaving like that and expect the fabric of society to hold together. And today I mention them, and we all think, well, those are just routine experiences that most people have every day. That's just what we do. We have selective moral outrage. We have a new phrase that's developing in our culture and our vernacular. It's called the Christian atheist. These are people who claim to know God and love Jesus Christ and devoted in following him. And they go to church every week, but they live their lives in a practical way as if God does not exist. Christian atheists. So it's possible in this culture to receive a letter in the mail, a letter of solicitation from, from a notable Christian preacher who will, who will write you and ask for money and in the letter say, last year was the worst year of my life. I went through a very painful, horrible divorce and I, it was just so hard for me. But in the next paragraph, he says, but thank God he's given me a new wife and I'm much happier now. And if you don't mind, send me a hundred bucks. And we have people reading those letters and we say, you know, I went through a divorce too. And I'm a Christian person. I went through, well, I went through two divorces. I, actually, I'm in my third divorce right now. But, and I, but, I, but I love Jesus and I, you know, I want to follow you know, the covenant and all that and stuff. Blah, 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 blah. And I know your pushback to me is, so you, just, you don't know my story. You don't know my situation. You, you shouldn't be judging me for, for what's happened to me. Look, I don't know your story. I'm just talking in general, generalizations. I'm just mentioning to you that we have selective moral outrage. And we can point our finger at people who, who maybe have gender confusion or sexual orientation issues that, that they struggle with and, and have to process and deal with. And it's easy, easy for some folks to point fingers and say, well, you know, that same-sex thing, that's going to ruin the everything. That's going to ruin the culture. How about keep your marriage together? How about keep your pants zipped up? How about, how about practice what you preach? How about, how about live with some sense of moral fiber and spiritual grit? How about, how about let's not have a divorce rate in the church that's the same divorce rate as in the world? How about, how about we, we actually behave in such a way that we recognize a higher authority in our lives and that actually matters when it comes to choices we make and decisions that we we choose yeah yeah We're, we have selective moral outrage so kick a puppy and you go crazy as you should destroy human life in the third trimester look look the other way on that one i'm stirring it all right Listen, you can point your finger at, at, at people who want to engage in same-sex marriage all day long, but, but uh, really, that's not the greatest threat to marriage and family in America. It's folks who apparently want to be perceived as moral who act in immoral ways. Because I'm talking to, I don't know how many people today, there's hundreds of people in the room here and over in the sanctuary, and I've talked to uh, you know, lots and lots of hundreds of people this weekend. And I've talked to people who are involved in adulterous relationships right now. People on this side of the room having an adulterous affair with people on that side of the room. 
And all I'm saying is that that's wrong. There are some things that are wrong. You can't make them right. And it doesn't matter what culture says about it. So you think same-sex marriage is okay. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that maybe the better approach right now for the Christian church is to stop fussing about the little speck in your neighbor's eye and look at the log that's still in your own eye. Let me tell you something else about the whole gay question. And this, I'm just glancing up against this. One of these days I'll, I'll spend the whole time on this subject because we need to talk about it. Let me tell you something. It, for a gay person, think about it, a person who's a teenager, who's struggling with their sexual orientation. For whatever reason, they're struggling with it. Let me tell you something. The church of Jesus Christ should be the absolute safest place in the world for that young person to come to. There shouldn't be a safer, more secure place for someone like that than the church. What is, the, what is the mandate? The mandate is love everybody. Love your neighbor as yourself. You get confused about how I'm supposed to act in the presence of somebody else? Just love, just love people. Just love people. Love people, accept people, forgive people. That's what you do. That, that whole judgment thing, that belongs to God. That's not, that doesn't belong to me. So we just give that to God. So just love people. You say, well, I'm committed to adultery. I don't feel much loved in here today. <laughs> Listen to me. I love you enough to speak to you. And God loves you enough to grab a hold of you right now. Yeah. So wake up. Shape up. Get, smarten up. Stop it. This is why the counseling center doesn't let me in over there. <laughs> I can't be trusted. All right. So Nehemiah says, go and enjoy choice foods, sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This is a day sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the whole point is not to feel horrible and condemned and dark about your, your mistakes, but rather be thankful and rejoice because God loves you enough to actually come close to you, to challenge you with your lifestyle. That's the cause for rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's the second thing. It's on your outline. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So you may be on the mountaintop of an experience right now, or you may be at the bottom under a crushing disappointment, but it doesn't matter when it comes to strength. And the reason it doesn't matter is because whether you're high or you're low, it doesn't effectively, fundamentally change who you are as a person. You're still you. See, I, I believe that you can lose someone or something most precious to you. And still have joy, which is different than happiness. Listen to this now. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Now, you can have joy and be happy at the same time. Or you can have joy and be completely unhappy at the same time. They are, they are different things. They are not the same. You can, you, can, you can have the strength of God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You can have 
the confident trust in God, this, this internal strength and sense of peace that comes only in a connectivity to God, the joy of the Lord, you can have that in spite of circumstances, which are good or bad. Here's a third thought. Joy is increased by generosity. Again, from verse 10. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. See, one of the secrets to joy is to give it away. One of the secrets of abiding joy is a generous spirit. Can I just nudge you with this? If you live like this, you won't be as happy, joyful, as people who live like this. Yesterday is a great example. Beth and I got to the house we were assigned to, to, uh, to help. And I knocked on the door, and a middle-aged woman opened the door, and and she invited me in. I stepped in, and right in the middle of the living room there was an elderly woman. I mean, this girl was old. She was sitting in a wheelchair with, you know, oxygen. And she's sitting there, and, and her mouth is open, kind of in a dull stupor. I mean, this girl, you know, I don't know how, how connected she is. And so I get some instructions about what they, the homeowner wants for us to do that morning. That's great. And I, I said, is this your mother? She said, yes, that's my mother. She's 97 years old. And I said, Grandma, 97. And a big smile came on her face. So I thought, she's here. Grandma's still here. <laughs> I said, congratulations for, for making it to 97. What a great record. And she said, thank you. <laughs> and then I looked at Grandma because, you know, she's 97 and on oxygen. I thought, any, any second now. And so, so, I sa- <laughs> so I said, so I said, Grandma, do you have peace? Are you at peace? She looked at me and she said, I have peace. I said, good. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that great? Now you think, you went there just to bless that woman. Not really. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you, I, I went there to do that and I was happy to do that. But that's not, see, this is the way my, the, my work, brain works. See, I went there for me. Because I know if I don't, if I don't help somebody, my life will be diminished. I, I've learned that my strength is actually increased when I am generous, when I give myself to others, when I invest my life in others, when I open my hands, open my heart. I actually get better for it. It's been fascinating for me. You know, I, I've said this a thousand different ways over the years, and I see so many people get this concept, and so they live in a generous way with an open heart and an open hand. And there are other folks who just never seem to be able to get it. You just can't get over that hump for some reason. You know, they can't, can't turn loose of themselves or their stuff in order to help someone else. Could I just nudge you about that? Because uh, the most joyful people in the world are the most generous people. The strongest people in the world are folks who've learned how to give themselves away. And that's what we learned from this passage. I, Nehemiah said, you know, there are folks here worshiping today who didn't bring enough to eat and they don't have enough, and so those of you who have some, help those who don't. I mean, and so the principle is in there. Joy is increased in generosity. And then the last point I want to make is that joy is secured in our daily devotion. Our daily devotion. Now watch. Verse 10 again. This day is sacred, Nehemiah said. It's holy to the Lord. It's set apart for the Lord. It's sanctified for the Lord. This day. And we learned this principle, and I brushed up against this a few weeks ago, that you will never come to God tomorrow. Isn't that true? I mean, you never do anything tomorrow because tomorrow never comes. All we have is right now. We have today. And Nehemiah teaches us that today is sacred to the Lord. It's holy to God. It's sanctified. 
You'll never worship God tomorrow. You'll never serve God tomorrow. You'll never have joy in God tomorrow. You'll never be faithful to God tomorrow. You'll never be submitted to God tomorrow. You'll never repent of your sins tomorrow because today is all we have. The two great realities that are married in this passage are these. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This day and the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we hear these important truths. This day is holy to God because he made it. He arranged this day. Nothing is going to happen to you today that is a surprise to God. And I don't know about you, but that's really comforting to me. God knows every detail. He's ordered our steps. This morning, just coincidentally, I got on my U version of the Bible, and I'm doing this now for you in real time. And here's the verse of the day, Proverbs 16, 9. In their hearts, human plans their Humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. There's that promise again. You know, he does fulfill his promises. He performs his promises. We learned that last week. And so what we know is that God is inclined toward us today. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows your need, and he knows your course. So he orders your steps. He prepares the way. He leads you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is the promises of God. And so God's grace is you word every day. This day, you can respond to him. God never gets caught off guard. You know, you just bought a new uh, Ford F-150 pickup truck. You love that truck. You've been saving up for years. It's bright red. You love that red. So nice. You pull it in the mall parking lot, park it, go in for some lunch, and you come out, and Grandma has backed up into the right rear quarter panel. Just smashed it. And, you've, and you start crying. <laughs> you, start, you start praying. God, this is my new truck. Why, God? Why did this happen to me? Now, listen, God doesn't respond to that kind of prayer and say, gee, I don't know. You know, that completely caught me off guard. <laughs> I don't. I just looked the other way for a second. Bang. <laughs> You're not going to get that from God. See, God is in this day, you word, with great grace. The circumstances of this day, bad in your life, they do not take your joy from you. And your circumstances this day, good in your life, do not give you joy. My joy is in the reality that this is God's day. I am his child. He is in this day with me, and his joy is my strength. That's it. This day is holy unto the Lord. This day is all I have. Last story. This comes from a man who is a messianic rabbi. He grew up in an orthodox Jewish home, practicing orthodox Jewish home, but came to believe that Jesus is Messiah. And so he has embraced Jesus as his Messiah. That's a wise choice because he is Messiah. And he now leads a messianic synagogue. So he, he leads a synagogue that's messianic. And so people who come there from a Jewish uh, uh, heritage worship Jesus. And when that happened in his life, his father, his family, community completely rejected him. When his father died, he tried to go to the funeral, and his two brothers would not permit him to go to the funeral. He said, it was one of the worst days of my life. I felt as though I had lost everything, everyone meaningful in my life. Driving away from the funeral home where he was forbidden by his brothers to attend his father's funeral, he was really angry. And really started laying into God. And he wrote, and he said, God, I've given up everything for you. And 
What have you given me back? My dead father and family are in that building. They won't even let me in. I've given up everything for you. And what do I have now? God said as he was, he said as he was driving away, Jesus spoke to him and he said it was so tender and yet so firm. And he heard Jesus say to him, have you given up everything for me? I died for you. I was rejected by my family. I was despised by my culture. I was despised and, and rejected. And I died for you. you. You haven't died for me. But I died for you. And the rabbi said, and I quote, he said, I had such a riot of emotions going on inside of me that I couldn't see to drive for the tears of grief for my father and his death and the separation from my family. He said, with tears on my face and grief in my heart, he said, I began to sing. And he said, as I sang, the joy of the Lord began to fill me. He wrote, now listen, this is so important. He said it was a strange experience because I, it didn't take away the pain. The grief was still very poignant. And yet, the joy of the Lord came in and gave me strength. That's it. That's it. Not this phony family we saw on the video. That's not it. But in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the challenge, in the midst of the crisis, in the, in the midst of the uncertainty, you can be strong. You can stay on the way because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Fantasy football team goes sour and you lose it? Come on. You get a C in calculus? I love to get C's in calculus. <laughs> I, I threw a party when I got a C in calculus. Stop stressing over that. Have a fender bender? Come on. Or take it to the depths, a bad report in a dark place, a bad diagnosis, a tragic event, a lost relationship, or push it all the way up to the top of the mountain, your sweetest human relationship or your greatest accomplishment. All of those things, none of those things can bring you joy. See, nothing can take your joy from you and nothing can give you joy. Only the joy of the Lord is your strength. I can't get an amen there. That's it. That's the point. That's the sermon. We're done. Ready? Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you and praise you for your joy. Your joy is our strength. It sustains us when we grieve. It encourages us when we are convicted. Now, friends, while we're in an attitude of prayer, I want you to look at some scripture with me. So just look up on the screen. Micah chapter 7. And it says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I'll, I'll bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. Now look at this next phrase. He will bring me out. He will bring me out into the light. And I will see his righteousness. Oh God, it is so good to know you will not allow us to stay in a dark place. You are the glory and the lifter of our heads. Your joy is our strength. And so we say thanks be to God in Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us now?